0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana and I am pleased to welcome back, oh my goodness, it's been almost a year and a half and I can't believe that you and I were just discussing this before recording Uh, how long it's been. Uh, Jim Hempel? welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me again. I I know. I can't believe it's been way too long.
0: I know. I guess it was one of those situations where, you know, we will occasionally text each other or fire off emails to each other. And I was uh, just before I, I got on the line with you, I just wanted to sort of I was going through the list of podcast episodes and I'm thinking, oh, my, it's it was the icons episode we did on John Travolta back in April of 2019, so it had been a while since we chatted. So, welcome back. Super happy you're here.
1: Yeah, I am too. Thank you so much.
0: Today, we're going to discuss the filmography of Michael Bay. Now, one of the things about Michael Bay, and we're going to get into a a deep dive into his career, but I was looking at his filmography online before we recorded, and he has 14 feature films that he directed, with the exception of Six Underground, because that was a straight-to-Netflix release. His first 13 films at a minimum, made more than their budget. Have you ever heard of a director with that type of track record, Jim? And then I'll follow that up by asking you. Overall, what does Michael Bay, the director, mean to you?
1: Uh, well, the first question, no. I don't think there's anybody who has the, in ter- just as a, a commercial success, uh, I don't think there's anybody who's really comparable to him because you know the only movie of his that I know of that was considered kind of a disappointment in terms of at least in the u.s box office was the island and even the island ended up i think making like you say i think it, it ended up making its budget back uh, overseas it did well it did really well internationally so i mean even even his quote-unquote flop uh was you know still a movie that you know made I don't remember, a hundred, a couple hundred million dollars worldwide. Um, and I, I don't think there's anyone else who compares to that. I mean, there was a period for a while, Roland Emmerich kind of had a similar track record, like from Stargate on. He didn't have a flop, but then he ended up having a couple that didn't make money. And, you know, most. Yeah, it's 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 completely unheard of. I mean, most directors, even the most commercially successful you know, I mean, I guess Spielberg probably comes pretty close. I don't think he's got too many that, uh, didn't at least break even. So he, he's, 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 he's up there, but, but yeah, Bay is remarkably consistent in terms of his, uh, his commercial success and, 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 you know, in six underground as I, from what I understand, you know, it's hard to know with the metrics of those kinds of things, but from what I understand, it was also quite, uh, popular on on Netflix um what he needs to me as a director was that the second part of the question yes you know Michael Bay is first of all I think you know he is the supreme technician I mean this is a guy who you know there are there are a handful of directors and they're these are very different directors that I'm going to name but there are a handful of directors and Stanley Kubrick is one and, and Spielberg is one and Christopher Nolan is one and I would say Michael Bay is one who have just a total command, not only of technique, but of the tools. I mean, Michael Bay, you know, really, really understands uh, just the, the mechanics of how to how to put how to convey something in a shot, which and, and, and I think some of that comes from his background as a director in in commercials, and music videos, you know, and I think there's there's sort of in critical circles, I think there's a little bit of snobbery about directors who come from commercials. I mean, that's changed somewhat with Fincher. But I know when I was younger, you know, there was the whole it's I was thinking about this just the other day because Alan Parker died a few days ago and you know, back in the early 80s, I remember there was this whole wave of British advertising directors who were breaking into features like Alan Parker and Ridley and Tony Scott and Adrian Line. And at the time, there was a, there was a real critical snobbery about those guys. And this, it was the idea was that they were somehow kind of, it was debasing cinema for those guys to come in and, and make movies These, because it was like, oh, they were just, you know, perfume salesmen or whatever, and not artists and and the same sort of there's the same sort of critical snobbery to a certain extent with Michael Bay but I think that what those guys have that people you know need to understand is it's hard to to tell a story with a beginning a middle and an end in 30 seconds it's hard to get across emotional impact and effects in 30 seconds which is what those guys have to do and I think one of Bay's great strengths as a director Is the sort of compression of information like his he will get, you know, Michael Bay. First of all, his movies have more shots than most directors do. And then within those shots, Michael Bay can give you more packed into one frame than most directors. I mean, he's constantly he really knows how to uh, just just use the frame so that there are multiple planes of action. There's always, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, he's just, he's just in his, when I think of him, the first thing that comes to my mind is his eye, you know, and I, and I just, I just think he's an exceptional visual stylist. And I think he has also kind of, I think he sort of has adapted the uh, in a way the sort of appeal and language of movie musicals to action movies and and what i mean by that you know musicals aren't really a big genre so much anymore they don't make that many of them but i think that bay i think his movie his action movies kind of do what musicals used to do in terms of sort of just being these totally abstract exercises in style where that you where there's just pure pleasure that comes from movement and sounds and light and he kind of uses you know his set pieces Something like the car chase in Bad Boys 2 is like the action movie equivalent of an enormous Busby Berkeley elaborately choreographed dance sequence. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's like Bay to me. I just, I respond to that. A lot of the ways that I think he's kind of pushed, he's kind of pushed the language of cinema forward. And again, I think that's why he, at, at some points in his career, has been sort of, you know, very critically underrated is because he's always been a little bit ahead of his time. And some of the things that people used to complain about in his movies uh, when they would say that that they were too loud or too many cuts or too this or too that, you know, now if you look at like The Rock or Armageddon or something, I mean, they seem classical because their, their language and techniques have been so appropriated by other filmmakers and movies since then. I mean, you know, the Marvel movies are unthinkable without Transformers. I mean, it's like he gave them the visual grammar to make those movies. And so, um, you know, in the same way that like Woody Allen, when he made Husbands and Wives and it was all handheld, people were freaking out and they were all, they were all like, Oh my God, this movie, it's like you're seasick. It, it, you know, now you watch Husbands and Wives and you don't think that because it's like every TV show is shot that way. And the same thing with Michael Bay, I think like his, you know, his, again, his innovations have, have been extremely, extremely influential. And, but saying all that, and I know this is an extremely long rambling answer to your question, saying, saying all of that about him as a stylist and a technician and everything else, I also think that it's he's somewhat underestimated when people when people say like Ben Affleck, you know, gave an interview where he said Michael Bay, whether you love him or hate him, he's an auteur. His stamp is on his movies, and I think when people say that, they they in a way it's only half the story like he's he is an auteur in all in all ways like he's not just an auteur in terms of the way he uses his camera or in terms of you know or his signature shots like when the camera will come up below two characters and kind of whirl around them as they're looking up you know the bad boy shot that he ends up doing a lot in a lot of movies like it's not just that kind of stuff like there is there are actual thematic and conceptual consistencies to his movies, which we can get into as we talk about the individual films, but I mean, you know, I, I was thinking about this watching Six Underground last night, that, that you know, Six Underground is all about, there's this sort of running uh, theme in it about family, and like, form. you know, these people in this movie kind of forming an alternative family, and I mean, that's like a thing in all of Michael Bay's movies, I mean, they're all movies about not, maybe not all, but most of them uh, there's on some level about broken families or missing mothers or you know the rock sean connery's father has been you know as the father has been separated from his daughter for years because he's been in prison whatever There are all these movies about like sort of broken families and people forming new families and things and that's so it's so it's like he's you know he's an auteur in the truest sense i mean he's got his preoccupations and his obsessions and i think the ways in which he has figured speaking your original point the ways he has what he's figured out how to do is explore those preoccupations and obsessions in the most kind of commercial accessible technological form possible and thus hit huge with audiences and i don't know that that's even con- i don't know how much of that is conscious and pragmatic or if i think he could be like spielberg where, where i think you know I, mean, I think both him and spielberg obviously they're they're smart guys and they're obviously i'm sure they think about these things from a pragmatic point of view i also think though in some ways it's just coincidental that what they like happens to be in touch with what audiences like and they they happen to be very lucky that their way of seeing the world is something that you know millions or billions of people tap into
0: do you feel like you mentioned you know his eye and and you know the way he frames his shots and sets everything sets his shots up is that instinctual instinctual or is that something that can be taught or is it just instinctual
1: you know this is something i think about all the time i, I always that because uh, i do think here's the thing i think it's both um and, and, I, and i've been thinking about this a lot lately and i've been thinking about it a lot with bay because of bad boys for life which came out i guess earlier this year and was not directed by michael bay and bad boys for life is a very good facsimile of what michael bay does it looks like the other bad boys movies it sounds like the other bad boys movies but it does not feel like the other bad boys movies and that's because you can to a certain degree learn you can to a certain degree you can look under the hood and you can break down how Bay is framing his shots. You can break down that he likes a lot of, he likes a lot of long lenses that kind of can compress the space. Sometimes he likes to, again, as I was saying, he likes to sort of have things going on, on like multiple planes of action. He likes generally, he likes quick cuts and quick shots. Although that's changed a little bit in the last couple of movies he's done in 3d because it's, it's a little harder to keep the eye active with that. Anyway, you can break all that down and you can, to a certain degree, imitate it. But what you can't imitate is that ultimately a director, to me, the most important thing, and I mean, we may have even, I may have even talked about this before when when we've talked about Tarantino or Oliver Stone or other people, but the most important aspect of directing really comes down to taste. I mean, because a director all day is answering questions and making decisions. I mean, all day they've got, it's, you know, there's like that great scene in Marriage Story where no, uh, where uh, Adam Driver's on the phone, and his like, uh, there's like a assist- assistant comes in and just keeps showing him pictures, and he's like, it's like pictures of two phones, and he points to one on the left. There are pictures of two chairs, and he points to one on the right. And that's kind of what a director does all day. Like a director is on the set, and they have a barrage with people coming up, and they're like, should the couch, should the couch be blue or red? Should the, it be a Ferrari or a Lamborghini? Should the car, uh, you know drive from left to right or right to left whatever and so all of those questions as you answer them they're being filtered through your taste and what you like to see and how you see the world and that's the thing that can't be taught i mean that's the thing that just ultimately that's what separates the people who we all revere from the people who may be very solid directors and who are doing great you know some some good movies and some good tv shows or whatever but The Michael Bay's or Steven Soderbergh's or Stanley Kubrick's or, you know, Francis Coppola's, there is just that I think there is there is an innate instinctive aspect to it, which is just the way they emotionally react to what they see and how they want to show it, if that makes sense. So, I mean, I think, again, I think you can learn you can learn how to uh, place your cameras the way Michael Bay places them. You can learn how to. You know, if you watch, like he's, it's funny that the Bad Boys 2 and uh, 13 Hours Blu rays both have some really good making of documentaries on them, and, and especially Bad Boys 2. You can, you really get to see how he stages some of those action scenes and how he works with the stunt coordinators and how they integrate physical stunts and effects with CGI. And you can, so you can study all that and you can learn how to do it, but the, the other part of it is just has to do with what you're born with and what your life experiences and how the movie you're making gets filtered through that
0: is there another director you could spot so clearly just from watching their film like i look back at i'm watching i mean i watched all of these films over the past couple of weeks, knowing we were going to have this conversation and I'm hard pressed to pick another director that I think I could so easily spot. And I mean that as a compliment, like this is a definitely mm-hmm. a Michael Bay film. Yeah, I mean, Spielberg probably comes in that conversation. Tarantino would probably come in that conversation, but I'm, I'm hard pressed to find another director that has such a unique style uh, than Michael Bay.
1: Yeah. I mean, certainly, I guess going back further, I would say Orson Welles is, has that as well. I mean, I think and, and some of the other, again, some of the other like British advertising guys, like I think Tony Scott is, I feel that way about to a certain extent, but it is, and I would agree with you that Spielberg, I think is, uh, you know, is, is that as well, but it's pretty rare. I mean, even, you know, and again, maybe Kubrick, maybe to a certain extent, but, um, you know, there are a lot of fantastic directors. I don't know that I would spot a Francis Coppola movie or a Peter Bogdanovich movie or certainly a Steven Soderbergh movie uh, I don't know that I can say from the first couple shots oh it's one of theirs whereas Michael Bay you're right you pretty much you know even like like something like Pain and Gain which is not a fantasy or action movie the way most of his other films are um, you can tell from the opening shot of Mark Wahlberg hanging from that mural thing uh, That that's a Michael Bay movie in one shot you can name it for sure so I, I agree I mean he's definitely and I think there's You know, I I don't think there is one, um, you know, there's no one right way to be a director. I mean, I love directors like Coppola, who sort of adapt their style to the demands of the material and do it differently. And I like directors like Bay, who have a style that the material adapts to. And it becomes sort of, like in a way, Bay's style is so strong, it affects... The content, it affects the way, like, I mean, and I mean, that's true of any director, obviously, like a, the same script directed by three different people is always going to be a, a different movie. Uh, but it's really, really true of Bay. I'm
0: going to take us back to 1995. I was 17 years old at the time. We, my friends and I were going to see the new Will Smith film, the new Will Smith movie. We weren't going to see the, the new Michael Bay movie because I'll be honest, his name, I didn't know. I didn't know him at all. Um, I knew Will Smith from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but we were going to see Bad Boys in 1995. And I think we unanimously left that theater kind of saying, you know, what the fuck did we just see? And I meant that, again, mm-hmm. it with the biggest compliment. It, it was one of the most stylized action films that I had ever seen up in my life up until that point, And it was one that I went and saw again the next day. I was so just engrossed with with the film. I, I couldn't get enough of it. So take me back to 1995 for you. What, what was going on in your life at the time? And, and take me through your first viewing of Bad Boys.
1: Yeah, well, I guess I was still, I think when that came out, I was a film student at USC. And I remember seeing Bad Boys opening day at the Cinerama Dome uh, and having very low expectations, actually, because like you say, I didn't know who Michael Bay was. It was his first movie. And I'm not somebody who really follows music videos or commercials that much. So I didn't know him, even though he had done some legendary music videos and commercials like I wasn't aware of him you know for me it was it was more I was going to see the new Don Simpson Jerry Bruckheimer movie I guess you know because they were uh big big action producers although they were that was kind of the movie that brought them back to prominence like they had sort of fallen into I mean they they weren't they weren't the huge thing they had been a few years earlier like in the 80s I mean there was nobody bigger than Simpson and Bruckheimer when they were producing stuff like Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop and uh you know Days of Thunder and whatever And uh, you know, I think Flashdance maybe. Uh, American Gigolo. So, you know, they were they were these huge, huge, huge producers. Um, but they had kind of like, I think in the early nineties they were falling out of favor a little bit, and the rock really is what like like brought them back. And anyway, I went into a very low expectations because I that trailer for that movie tormented me for months. Like it was before every movie I went to see for like three months before Bad Boys came out. I got so sick of that trailer. And I thought it was a very weird idea to do an action movie with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. Cause, I mean, you gotta remember at the time, you know, Will Smith was the fresh prince of Bel Air. And, you know, he'd done like maybe he did Six Degrees of Separation or something. But, like, he was not an action star. Martin Lawrence certainly wasn't an action star. I mean, they were both bigger action stars than the guys the movie was originally supposed to star, which was John Lovitz and Dana Carvey. But, um, I do, I don't know. Like, I just, I went in kinda like, I'm gonna go see this cause it's, it's opening day at the Cinerama Dome. Um, I love to go into movies and cinema, so I would see everything that I ever played there. And, uh, you know, much like you, I was just completely blown away by, it. I mean, I still in a way, you know, Bay, it's funny because I'm bad boys two extras. He kind of talks a little bit, not disparagingly about bad boys, but you can tell, like, he doesn't like it as much as some of his other movies, because I think he had so much more limited resources and because the studio didn't really have faith in him and he, he had a lot to overcome. Doing that movie, and I feel like he didn't get what he wanted out of it. But I actually still think it's one of his best movies because it is a movie by a guy who has a lot to prove. Like, you can tell it is a movie by a guy who, like, this is his shot. He knows it. He is going to make the most of it. And it did, much like I was talking about how Transformers, how, like, the Marvel movies are kind of unthinkable without Transformers. I think the second half of the 90s is kind of unthinkable without bad boys i mean i just think the way bay shot those action sequences it influenced everybody i mean i just think you know so many action movies after that looked like bad boys and and i think it was a movie that re you know it it breathed new life into something that had gotten kind of stale the whole idea of the buddy cop movie the, you know the lethal weapon uh 48 hours you know and i, I mean movies i love but like there, there have been so many of them it was getting a little bit stale and he he really found a way to breathe uh new life into it and and it, it also and this is again something i think will come up over and over again as we talk about his movies something is way, way in which bay is very underrated is as an actor's director and i think you see that in bad boys i mean like he really again nobody else saw will smith and martin lawrence as action stars and nobody else saw Tay Leone as an action star and as somebody who could hold her own with those two guys like she i mean Tay Leone, i remember you know she was like in that in the 90s she was always kicking her, people were always trying to figure out what to do with Tay Leone. like she would be there were more failed tv pilots and series and stuff with Tay Leone than you could believe but those three together in that movie were just absolute Dynamite. I mean, he just really knew how to use them. And I mean, you know, he made Will Smith a a star in one shot. I mean, the shot of Will Smith running down the street with a gun with his shirt open that's the shot, the same way that Walter Hill made Eddie Murphy a star in the Redneck Bar scene in 48 Hours. That scene, Will Smith became a star in one shot. Um, And that's another thing that I think Bay, you know, is really good at for a guy who is sort of thought of as somebody who demolished a lot of the norms of classical Hollywood cinema, he has a lot in common with the directors of the studio system of the 30s and 40s. And one thing is, he knows how to make his actors icons. And you see that right from the beginning with Bad Boys.
0: 1996, We Get the Rock, which I will say openly is in the debate, I think, for one of the greatest action films of all time. And I I say that knowing the company that it's in, when you make a statement like that, I rewatched it a few days ago i think i even texted you and said you know this is this is easily one of the greatest action films of all time saw it in the theater opening day 18 years old again mind blown like just had an incredible time with this film and it's again this is not a knock on Michael Bay but if i was to introduce someone to the films of Michael Bay this would be the jumping off point for me i'd say well we're watching this film first i mean that's how much mm-hmm. this film means to me tell me about your experience with the rock
1: i mean that's an interesting it's interesting that's an interesting question about like which movie to introduce somebody uh, to his films with because on the one hand like the rock is probably a really good choice because it is it has a lot of what makes him great but I almost feel like, 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 because my initial instinct would be to show somebody Bad Boys 2 or even uh, Six Underground, because I feel like they are in some ways like the most Bay, Bay movies, but they're also so Bay that they might be like if it was the first one you watched, your head might explode. Um, whereas The Rock still kind of has its foot in like more, slightly more conventional action filmmaking, whatever. But, um, you know, to me, The Rock, again, going back to his, his flair with actors. I mean, when I think of that movie, I just think of, you know, I, again Cage, Nicolas Nicholas Cage like nobody else knew he was an action hero then which it sounds seems insane now but you know he I think he did leaving Las Vegas right before he did The Rock and then I you know maybe like I think he won the Oscar for that uh while he was shooting The Rock but you know so Cage was thought of at the time as kind of a you know a, a dramatic actor albeit a very quirky dramatic a- actor but like the idea that he was going to become the action star of, you know, Con Air and Face Off and The Rock predated Face Off, right? Or am I now getting my dates screwed up?
0: Uh, the um, Face Off was 97. Oh, okay. No, Face oh, right. so Off was 97.
1: Face Off 97. 97 and then what year did you say The Rock was? Uh,
0: the Rock was 96, Face Off was okay. 97, oh, yeah. I think okay, Con okay, Air so right was 98. Then, yeah. So, we'll just... Yeah, right. yeah.
1: So, yeah. So, so, my theory holds <laughs> that, that Cage was like, yeah, I mean, that Face that, Off... That, that you know, something he could do with him that other people didn't see and you know this the the performances in that movie him and connery and ed harris you know are just i think that's what anchors that movie but i also think um you know it's it's got i don't know that i'd go as far as you to say it's one of the greatest action movies ever made but i would certainly say it has some of the greatest action sequences in the history of movies i mean that the chase scene through san francisco with the humvee and stuff i mean that is just uh, absolutely incredible and it's actually something that bay i believe had to fight a little bit over with the writer because the writer was like, this doesn't need to be here. Like this doesn't advance the story in any way. And Bay was kind of like, yeah, but you need it here because this is an action movie. And without it, there's a big long stretch without action. And he's, he's right, you know? Um, But yeah, it's, it's another one. Again, I just think that the, the performances in that movie uh, have so much life. And he, he knows what I mean about like him being a great director of actors is like, he knows how to create, the, the right balance where he gives them this sort of solid structure they can play in, but then knows how to, like, let them cut loose in that structure and do idiosyncratic things that give the movie life. Like, you know, Nicolas Cage just sitting, you know, in his underwear or whatever, just playing the, the guitar in his, his apartment and things like that. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's, it's another... Uh, it was certainly... I remember seeing that movie and thinking that, you know, this guy uh, like the thing I like about Bay is that as his movies budgets get bigger, like which they do almost exponentially. I mean, you know, Bad Boys was like a fairly for a Hollywood studio movie was fairly modestly budgeted. and Then he had a lot more money for The Rock. He had a lot more money for that than that for Armageddon. And it kind of keeps going up. But the thing about Bay is like the money is on screen. I mean like The Rock is a, an enormous movie and Armageddon is an enormous movie and the Transformers movies are enormous movies. I mean like he does not, there are some directors their budgets get bigger and the movies don't necessarily get bigger. It's just that everyone's getting paid more. Um, and Bay is not one of those guys and so I, I remember seeing The Rock and thinking okay this is like the kind of director this guy is going to be, he is going to take a, like a quantum leap with every movie.
0: And you know, when we get to 1998, I want to tell you this is a confession time. 98, like how many how many times has this happened where we get a two movies about uh, essentially the same subject subject come mm-hmm. out? You know, volcano, uh, Dante's Peak. You know, this this happens all yeah. the time. Yeah. So. In 98, we get Deep Impact and we get Armageddon. Deep Impact was released first. I saw that in the theater. And I think I remember at the time, and again, this is 22 years ago, and I was completely, I think my mindset was completely different than what it is now because I've, I've revisited that film and I actually have a lot of respect for it now. But at the time, mm-hmm. I don't think it really did it did it for me. So, I guess you could say I had a little bit of uh, uh asteroid fatigue after <laughs> Deep Impact. And so, when Armageddon came out, I just opted not to see it in the theater. And again, I want to point out that I'm not correlating that these are Michael Bay films. Like like, like when we go from Bad Boys to The Rock to Armageddon, I'm not putting it together. So, I don't see Armageddon until it's released on, I think it's one of the first DVDs that I ever watched. I mean, because this is right when DVD was starting to take over the video stores. So, uh, But I still saw it, you know, on the old-fashioned 25-inch tube television. Mm -hmm. I loved the movie. I had a blast with it and it was one of the big, regrets in my life that i didn't see it in the theater and i had pledged that moving forward i would never miss a michael bay film in the theater ever again and obviously Mm -hmm. up until six underground i kept that pledge Mm -hmm. so take me through your experience of seeing armageddon and your thoughts on the film
1: um i well i did i like you i i think again even though i liked the previous two michael bay movies a lot uh, i wasn't necessarily all that excited for armageddon because um because of Deep Impact, although I like and I liked Deep Impact a lot, I'm a big fan of that director, Mimi Leader, and I, I thought Deep Impact was really good, but it was kind of like, okay, well, how many times do I need to see an asteroid uh, destroy the Earth? Um, but you know, I went to see it because it was there and and it was a big movie, and uh, you know, I like absolutely loved it when it came out when I saw it in the theater. Man, I thought it was a it was the first Michael Bay movie where I felt like you the uh, you got the power of the excess and i mean like and i mean and i know people who don't like his movies this is what they don't like about them but like he is a he is not a less is more filmmaker you know he is a more is more filmmaker and armageddon i feel like you know it was it had some an astronomical you know budget compared i think to like the rock and bad boys and he just you know i felt like it was it just was, he gave you so much movie in that movie. And even, even, even before it, they go up into space. I mean, he gives you more movie just in terms of, again, I know not like he on this acting thing, but like just the ensemble of actors he gives you in that movie is crazy. I mean, it's just from, from Billy Bob Thornton to, you know, obviously Bruce Willis and Affleck, but like then, you know, Billy Bob Thornton, Owen Wilson, Will Patton, you know, there's just everybody in that movie has so much, it's Stormare, I mean, they, they have so much personality. And there's just that movie's just so packed with entertainment value. Now I have to make a confession, which is that I don't love that movie quite as much now as I did when it came out. But I don't think that's because of the movie. I think it's because, again, it was so influential that when I watch it now, the the final third of that movie doesn't excite me the way it did when I saw it in the theater. I think because it's been ripped off so many times, because there's just been so many, so many big spectacle movies and so many comic book movies and everything have adopted like. Bay's approach to production design and shooting and everything like that. So it's kind of like when you watch John Carpenter's Halloween now, and it doesn't have the impact that it had when it came out because ten gazillion movies ripped it off afterwards. But you know, I but I thought Armageddon was uh, fantastic when it came out, and I yeah, I don't. I'm pretty. I'm hundred percent sure that uh, I've seen every Michael Bay movie in the theater. I think I would be again, except for Six Underground. Um, it's sort of unimaginable to me to watch any of them for the first time. Uh, at home, although you know now nowadays the TVs are getting bigger and better, and so it's 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 more imaginable now than it would have been at the time of of Armageddon. It is, uh, I it does make me sad to think of you watching your twenty five inch tube TV and uh, mm-hmm. seeing, you know it's not widescreen either, either. <laughs> like that's not it's not, it's right. not seeing, letterboxed, like, a pan, <laughs> seeing a pan and skin. Well, see, I remember the thing about Armageddon is it was one of the rare movies that they did make a letterboxed VHS version of because I bought it. I remember. When it came out on VHS, um, I remember going to Best Buy uh, like on a day when I was sick. I had a horrible, horrible cold. And I knew the only thing that would make me feel better would be to watch Armageddon. And <laughs> was the, there was a blockbuster right across the street from me, but it was the pan and scan VHS. And I knew that I had seen it Best Buy. They had a widescreen VHS version because I didn't have a DVD player yet. And so I remember like, yeah, going... Driving with a horrible cold, feeling miserable, to Best Buy to go get my letterboxed uh, Armageddon VHS tape, and uh, it was indeed very satisfying to watch. It did make me feel better.
0: That's a, and this is a theme I'll ask you throughout the episode. So, those are the '90s for him. So, overall, what are your what's your thoughts on sort of the impact he had in the 1990s?
1: Again, I, I don't and I don't know if it's my my brain is not as great as it used to be with dates and stuff so i'm not sure how immediate the impact was but i think those movies uh i think they had a ma- i think all three of those movies he made in different ways uh made a massive impact i mean i just think that his i think he again the saw the scale like it it raised it sort of raised the bar for what you had to do to deliver to an audience in those movies it raised the bar in a couple of ways like it raised the bar in terms of the scale you movies had to be bigger it raised the scale in terms of how much visual information you could give people because I think what his movies showed, and even more so some of the later films like Bad Boys 2 and uh, the Transformers movies, I mean, those movies showed that audiences, you know, they could cons- that they could consume a lot of visual information if you provided it. And so in a way, like, it was it was okay to give them more and in some ways maybe even necessary. And then again, I think just in a very basic sense too that is not thought of is people don't think about influence in this way but the entire hollywood movie industry would be different if michael bay hadn't cast will smith in bad boys and nicholas cage in the rock i mean those you know think about if nobody else got the idea for will smith to be an action star like movie history for the last 25 years is different same thing with nicholas cage so you know it's uh It's a wonderful life sense of if this guy never lived, would it have made a difference? Uh, If Michael Bay never lived, you know, the movie industry would be completely different.
0: I agree with you on that one. So we're going to go fast forward three years to May 25th, 2001. This is when Michael Bay's probably, at the time, his most epic film, Pearl Harbor, is released. Now, I've got a couple questions for you on this one. Of course, like I mentioned, I did see this in the theater. And if I had one complaint, I I, I always felt like I wish this, I, I feel like, this should have been an R-rated film, and I wonder if it was a studio decision for it not to be R-rated. But I want to talk about this film in the context of two things. One, your thoughts on it, on it, and two, this film came out months prior to 9-11, and I wonder, you know, how, if, and when this film would have been made had, you know, the events of September 11th happened afterwards, or before. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I, speaking of the September 11th thing, I mean, it's the interesting thing about that movie is I think it... Uh, it gained a lot of popularity a- after 9-11. I mean, it became like a huge video title. It was actually a bigger movie, even on video than it was the theatrical box office. And I think a lot of it was because of 9-11, because 9-11 kind of like, a, you know, there's this resurgence of people wanting, wanting to be patriotic about something. So that actually really, I mean, it served, you know, it, 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 it helped Pearl Harbor. I mean, I think Pearl Harbor, you know, and so I think that movie, I I don't think it would have been more difficult. It probably wouldn't have been more difficult for him to get it made after after 9-11 probably would have been even easier. But I and speaking to your point about the R-rated thing. I don't know for a fact, but there is, you know, there is a director's cut of Pearl Harbor on HBO Max and I watched it this week um, and it's not drastically different it's only it's not like it's a lot longer it's maybe a couple minutes longer but all those those few minutes that are longer they're all r-rated gore shots (laughs) like it's 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 all it's much like the version that is on hbo max and they have both versions there's theatrical and the director's cut i think they're both on there and if you watch the director's cut and also the director's cut is the one you should watch anyway because it's the only one um that's in the proper aspect ratio this drives me completely nuts but uh the, the version of pearl harbor the theatrical cut on HBO and on Hulu and everywhere else is uh, it's in like the standard one seven eight to one widescreen TV aspect ratio and not the two three five to one ratio that uh, they shot it in. So you got to watch the director's cut to see it properly anyway, but the director's cut is much gorier. And um, so my which leads me to believe that he probably if he had his way, <clears throat> probably would have released it that way as an rated movie, but they but it was probably so expensive that, you know, the studio wanted a PG 13, uh, you know, summer, summer movie or whatever. Um, so yeah, you know, pure Pearl Harbor hands down my least favorite Michael Bay movie, um, was then is, is still, uh, it is not a movie I'm a fan of. And I think for a few reasons, I mean, I think unquestionably the Pearl Harbor attack sequence is incredible action filmmaking. I mean, there's no doubt like that. That And if that happened had happened a half hour into the movie instead of an hour and a half into the movie, we'd be having a different conversation. But the only reason that movie is three hours, in my opinion, is because Titanic had been three hours., yeah. And clearly, Titanic was the model. and the the I just think without difficulty, without breaking a sweat, you could you could get. Everything that movie gets across in the first hour and a half before the Pearl Harbor attack happens, you could do it in a half hour and the movie would be better because there is no depth to those love stories like that love triangle between those three. I mean, there three blander knuckleheads has a movie r- rarely seen than bad Affleck, like Josh Hartnett and Kate Beckinsale in that movie. I mean, I just think, uh, you know, it's I don't know. I think there's, I think I get where they were going for with that movie. I think the idea was, you know, it was supposed to be kind of an old fashioned black and white, you know, broad strokes melodrama. But for me, the melodrama component of it just is completely uninteresting. And the fact that it takes up so much screen time, I just feel like is, is deadly. And I think, uh, I, you know that is a that is a movie where when things are not blowing up I could not care less about it so it's not it's not a movie I'm a fan of and it didn't it hadn't aged it hadn't improved with age when I watched it again although I did like the the added uh, gore in the movie but and you know and it might be a, a script level thing because I think that movie uh, I hope I'm not getting this wrong because I hate giving wrong information but I think Pearl Harbor was written by the same guy who wrote Braveheart and I'm not a fan of that movie either so you know, I guess so. People can you can take that take my thoughts on (laughs) Pearl Harbor with a grain of salt, I guess, because I know I'm in the vast minority and thinking that Braveheart is a not a great movie, but um, yeah, so it's it's it was one where you know, and here's the thing we've talked about this a little bit before off mic that you know, in general, with Michael Bay, I like I and there are exceptions, you know, like Armageddon, but like in general, I like my Bay R rated, I like I like Bay. Uh, I like Bay totally just unleashed. And I think Pearl Harbor, again, brilliant action direction, but just it, it has a slightly bland quality to it that I don't associate with any of these other movies. So, you know, my apologies to the the Pearl Harbor fan. No,
0: no, it's okay. Well, listen, there's two things. (laughs) First, uh, you were correct. Randall Wallace was the writer on that. And he was also the, Uh uh, the writer on Braveheart. Um, And if I'm making a, and I guess we're, we're doing true confessions here. When I put this film on, Maybe 10 minutes into it, I said, okay. And I just fast forward it to sort of the, you know, the, the, the grand spectacle of the film, which is sort of the, the attack. And I sort of fast forward a good hour and 15 into the movie. And and so this is why I'm like, I'm like, I'm I'm going, yeah, oh yeah, I was blown away by this movie. It's like, yeah, (laughs) but I mean, I understand what you're saying and I agree with you regarding sort of the, the love story and, and the angle of why that was for lack of a better terms, sort of probably shoehorned into that film. But I'll also agree with you that the, the entire attack sequence is again, I'm, my jaw's on the floor when I'm watching that the other day, like this, yeah. it, it just looks amazing. And he's one of the, it's one of the few directors that really kind of blends the practical and CGI together yes, seamlessly.
1: Absolutely. He is the master of that. I think th- there are two things he does better than anybody else uh, or certain, or maybe, I mean, maybe Spielberg's up there with him too but like basically you know bay the two things he does as well as anyone has ever done them are directing large scale massive action with lots of moving parts and blending practical and cgi i mean that is you're you're so right like he really knows he knows how to do enough of it real or with miniatures or you know with real physical things to kind of sell it as real and then accentuate it with CGI, and and again, I would direct. I, know I keep talking about these Bad Boys Two extras on the Blu-ray, but I would direct people to watch like the make the production diaries on the Bad Boys Two Blu-ray because it's it's fascinating to watch how they he shot the car chase in that, and really was flipping real cars and and all that kind of stuff. But then would have in the midst of the flipping real cars, you know, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence's car is CGI because it's like they don't want to destroy to risk destroying a three hundred thousand dollar ferrari uh and they don't want to kill martin lawrence and will smith so um you're so right i I think that is the thing he is just supreme at he's so good at knowing that and 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 again pearl harbor like i'm being kind of snobby about it uh because i've again i I don't like the script that much but i mean you will certainly i never get an argument from me that like when that movie is action-oriented it's you can't beat it.
0: I mean, even the trailer where you see the the uh, the bomb dropping from the Japanese plane mm-hmm. and the camera just follows it all the way down to the ship. Even that like that was I remember that being in the trailer just going, oh, my God, like I have yeah. to I'm going to have to run to the theater to see this film. So, yeah, he
1: really he really pioneered the bomb and bullet POV shots. Yeah. <laughs> he does. Those are he really does as well.
0: Speaking of that, that's a great way to segue into 2003's Bad Boys 2. Again, a film that I just rewatched. I I guess I can just stop saying I just rewatched. I just watched all of these over the past, Mm -hmm. you know, two and a half weeks and go back to what I was saying about the, you know, the blending of the CGI and the practical effects. And this film for me, I saw this in the theater. How do I say this politely? I think the movie is 20 minutes longer than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. But, but that being said, I still had a hell of a good time in the theater watching the film. Your thoughts on it?
1: Yeah, well, it's, I mean, obviously, you know, I like I say, I felt that way about Pearl Harbor. So I know where you're coming from. But in the case of Bad Boys 2, for me, uh, again, more than almost any other Bay movie except for Six Underground, the excess is its own reward. And like, I love the fact that in Bad Boys 2, they give you what a normal action movie would give you. And then they still go to Cuba. Yeah. And there's like a whole other <laughs> action movie that you can get in Cuba. And I, I think Bad Boys 2, again, I can get where the people who don't like him, this movie is kind of your worst nightmare because it is pure Bayhem at its at its height. For me, it's maybe my favorite movie of his um, because I just feel like it has, you, you know, again, going back to what I was saying about how he probably did, he didn't seem like he had all the resources he wanted for the first Bad Boys. Bad boys too. He had all the resources in the world, and he boy did he use them. I mean, that is just a movie where it's excess on every level. I mean, it's it's just the volume, the gore. I mean, the fact that you know, the fact that there's a car, another car chase where like dead bodies are being <laughs> thrown out of a van as like you know, and being dismembered on the street. I mean, it's it's insane. I mean, the, the the violence in that movie is almost like Dawn of the Dead in places or something. And uh, you know, I'm uh, yeah, I'm a he- I love. Bad Boys 2. I mean I just think it's uh you know I just think it's it's the greatest. I mean and I think the whole uh you know I love the fact that again see speaking of his like blending of physical and CGI uh you know that house that they blow up in Bad Boys 2 that's like enormous. I mean evident- you know that was a real house. That was a house that was like built like built for some Coca-Cola air or something and never finished and then the guy who bought the property was going to raise it to the ground, but he decided just for the hell of it, he took an ad out in Variety and said, you know, enormous mansion about to be destroyed. If you want to blow it up for a movie, you know, call me. And Michael Bay saw that and they went and blew up this guy's house for real. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's crazy. But but yeah, I, I'm uh, a very, very big uh fan of bad boys too
0: yeah and you know you mentioned the whole cuba thing i to me from when i was watching i was just kind of like oh we're really doing this like uh (laughs) you know and it was kind of like uh to me, I don't want to say it was anticlimactic because it was an incredible scene, and and when they're going down the when they're in the Hummer and they're going down the mountain, and it just it's incredible. But kind of like Pearl Harbor, where you know the the Doolittle raid that is the last like forty five mm-hmm. minutes of the film, just it kind of paled in comparison to the rest of what I'd ar- or to what I'd already seen. And so I think right. that's why I always say it's you know it's twenty minutes longer than I than I would like it to be, but I cannot take away from what's on the screen during those last 20 minutes.
1: Yeah, I get where you, I get where you're coming from. I mean, I think and I definitely think that's the problem with Pearl Harbor that is just baked into the structure is that, you know, you it's it, it, it is the, the most amazing thing in the movie happens in the middle not at the climax and that's you know, and that's often a problem with with action movies. I mean, it's always as much as I love uh, The Harrison Ford Fugitive and I do, you know, that's a movie where like the two the sort of biggest dramatic things, the train crashing and the chase where he jumps off the waterfall. It happened in the first half hour of the movie. Um, but in the case of bad boys too. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely get where you're coming from because I think that that massive, um, car chase in the middle of the movie really is never, is never topped. But I still think the, th- the thing in Cuba where they're going down and you know, all the shacks are blowing up. If you can leave aside your, you know, uh, compassion for all the poor people whose lives are being destroyed by these cars racing down the hills uh you know which is another thing i mean another thing about michael bay movies i mean i remember that being something like you know like roger Ebert, who was a notorious michael bay hater i mean he just like despised his movies and i remember michael bay i mean i remember roger Ebert really hating the climax of bad boys 2 where those cars are going down the hills and you know he's just like all i could think about was that this was a, a shanty town for poor people and these guys are destroying and no one in the movie is making a uh, a comment about the fact that all these people's homes are being destroyed and it's like you know complaining about a lack of social awareness or reality in a michael bay movie is like complaining about the lack of musical numbers and vertigo i mean <laughs> it is not th- that is not the universe these movies are operating in i mean michael bay movies are as much their own self-contained uh you know artificial universe as the as West Side Story. I mean, and and or a Marvel movie. And I mean, you know, to the point that even in uh, in the second Transformers movie, when uh, Shia LaBeouf's character in his dorm room, you know, has a movie poster, it's a movie poster for Mad Boys Two. He's got a movie poster for another Michael Bay movie. That's how <laughs> hermetically sealed the world of these movies are. It's like people don't even watch other movies than Michael Bay movies. <laughs> and and I think you know the most jarring moment in bad boys two for me is when Michael Bay himself comes on screen, like as he's driving this like crappy car and he, they have this like little shtick with him and Martin Lawrence, and Will Smith about the car and whether or not they're going to take this crappy car and they don't. Um, and that scene always throws me out of the movie because seeing an average car in a Michael Bay movie, it is like, it's suddenly, I I don't know, it feels so wrong. Like, that car doesn't... Even as a joke, that car feels so out of place in that movie. And it's, it's, like, a weird disconnect for me. But anyway, so I think, like, you know, the... Yeah, worrying about like social reality and what Michael Bay movie. It gets a little bit more complicated, I think, when you get into uh, something like 13 Hours, which is based on a true event that is very recent. But, you know, I I get where there's some sort of thorny political stuff going on there. But anyway, that's my two cents about the climax of Bad Boys 2, which I still think is great.
0: Yeah, no. Just recapping here with Bad Boys, The Rock, Armageddon, just, you know, big action films. Pearl Harbor, you know, based on a real event. And like we said, I think we both agree that probably a little longer than it needs to be. That's putting it mildly. Bad Boys 2 is a sequel. Really, this is, you you say that he kind of probably doesn't think the best about Bad Boys uh, because he probably didn't have the resources or the studio support. He certainly had it with Bad Boys 2 and like you said, it shows on screen. Let's talk about 2005 with The Island, which was uh, written by Alex Kurtzman. And again, I saw this in the theater back in 2005, and I remember her very, really, really enjoying the film and, and pleasantly surprised at just sort of how, how the story was sort of unfolding. This is arguably the least known Bay film. Would you, yeah, would you agree sure, with that? Yeah. This is one that is never ever talked about and Mm -hmm. when i revisited it i mean it holds up for me it still holds Mm -hmm. up i mean 15 years after the fact like the first hour of the film is is really it's i think a really interesting setup and then we get a couple action sequences that uh, again, nothing's gonna rival the Bad Boys 2 bridge sequence I'm sorry mm-hmm. but we get one that's pretty close with the yeah. uh, the railroad uh, wheels I'll leave it at that yeah. which is an incredible cool. sequence. What is it about this film that you think audiences didn't identify with and, and do you have a theory at all as to why this film didn't didn't hit the mark with audiences and I think it's one of his better films.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's a total mystery because I had exactly the same response to it as you. I really enjoyed it when it came out. I really enjoyed it when I revisited it last week and you know, like I was going to be talking to you. And I, you know, it's, it's, I guess, you know, movies, it's a lot of it is just timing. And I don't remember what it was about the timing of that movie coming out then. I don't remember what else was playing that maybe, maybe would have, uh, you know, overwhelmed it. Um, I don't know if it's the title. The Island was too generic. I think. You know, because here's a problem I think you can run into marketing wise with movies is when you have a movie where a big part of the strength is a reveal that you don't necessarily want to give away, um, which I think is the case for the island. I mean, I think that, you know, a big strength of that movie is the point where you find out what's really going on on the island. And so if you don't want to give that away in the marketing, you're kind of your hands are tied a little bit. And sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it works. Like, you know, Gone Girl was a movie where it had a huge twist that you didn't want to give away in the marketing. And Fincher demanded of the studio, he said, you know, with Gone Girl, nothing in the trailer that happens past the 40 minute mark or something like that in the movie. Um, and they were still managed to sell the movie that way. Island. I think people were maybe just unclear of what it was. And so they didn't go, they were just like, you know, the Island and you see a poster with you and McGregor and, uh, Scott Johansson running and you don't really know what it is. And I just, it, it just, I, for whatever reason, it didn't, uh, Resonate, but the honest truth, the honest answer is, I don't really know because I've always liked it. I liked it when it came out. I like it now. I've never understood why it wasn't a movie that resonated with people.
0: And it's a movie that I think. Is really ahead of its time now. I mm-hmm. think I think it's a film that could be released as is in 2020. And I think just given yeah. where technology is heading, and and you know it, you know without spoiling the plot of what the film is, it almost seems more feasible now that something like that yeah. would happen. And oh, I, I definitely. Think, and if if you've never seen The Island, listeners, I will please, please. I mean, I think Jim and I is going to Jim and I will you know, both urge you seek this film out. It's excellent, but it is again PG 13. You mm-hmm. know and. He's going to go PG-13 with the next three movies after that. And I think if we're going to talk about the Transformers, we may may as well just talk about them as, you know, the series, the franchise, Mm -hmm. the five films, if you will. I will talk to you about my anticipation for 2007's Transformers. It reminded me of my anticipation of Jurassic Park in 1993, in the sense that the initial marketing for Jurassic Park, you didn't see the dinosaurs in the trailers. You saw glimpses, you saw foot. And, and when I wanted to see Jurassic Park, I, I knew the pedigree behind who was making the film and I knew that I was going to see something I'd never seen before. I am a child of the 1980s and Transformers, the cartoon and the toys were a big, big part of my life growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first movies I ever saw in the theater was the animated Transformers, the movie. I think that was 84 or 85 when that film came out. So. Mm-hmm. I will admit there be, to being, there being some nostalgia, a nostalgia factor for me when the marketing started for this film. But pr- truth be known, you very rarely saw the Transformers in the trailer. And I went to the very first screening. I think it was a midnight or might have been a Wednesday. I think this was a 4th of July release. It might have been a Wednesday or even a Tuesday. I can't remember, but it was a midnight showing of the film. And what I really just loved about this film is, is you get that first glimpse of a Transformer at the base, the, you know, the operating base. In the desert. But then it's a good hour before we get the big reveal. And mm-hmm. look, I- I'm an unabashed fan of this film. I know that's crazy. Some people don't like these this series at all. But the way some people like Marvel films is the way I like mm-hmm. the Transformers movies. And I've always never been the biggest Marvel guy. I'm like, uh, I am a big Transformers guy. And I guess I'm putting that out there for the first time on the podcast because I just have a blast with all of these films. But especially this first one, and the third one are the two that really yeah. stand out for me. Transformers and Transformers Darker the Moon are my two favorite of the five that he directed. So your thoughts on Transformer series?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, again, that Mar- the Marvel comparison, you know, I, as, as I said at the beginning of this whole thing, I just think uh, is the, you know, Transformers, I feel like. The first Transformers, I feel like, really just established how those kinds of movie, how to do those kinds of movies, in a way that the Marvel movies were very influenced by. And I think, you know, I didn't go into it with the same uh, anticipation that you had, in the sense that I think, you know, I'm ju- the fact that I'm just a few years older than you means I, I, sort of missed the cutoff, like of being I was I never saw the Transformers cartoon series. I've never seen the movie, in spite of the fact of knowing that it was narrated by Orson Welles and that it has the Stan Bush song. You got the touch, which is you know also which is sung by Mark Wahlberg and in my favorite Nights, movie yeah. of all time. Um, but uh, so I never I I knew what the toys were. I mean, I remember think I think I was still I was ju- I was young enough to like think the toys were really cool when they came out. But I never saw the cartoons or the, the movie. And you know, I I, I got a, I mean, so for me as an adult. Going to see it uh, when I was, gosh, what, almost, uh, I was, would have been 30, mid-30s or something when that movie came out. So, as a mid-30s adult, um, you know, I didn't have the nostalgia for it. I the, the things that I was struck with the first time were the astonishing technology of it i mean the aston- the the astonishing way you know of cgi of the transformers themselves um and how gorgeous megan fox was i think those were the two things that really like made an impact on me when i saw that movie at the time but um but it's funny because i had a memory like you know i have not uh i, I saw each transformers movie as it came out but didn't really revisit them and i and i had this memory before when i knew i was going to do this with you you know i i I I had this memory that I wasn't really a big fan of Transformers movies. I had this memory that like, well, you know, again, I like my Michael Bay R rated the Transformers movies, their kids movies, you know, eh, they're not so much my thing, but I revisited a couple of them this week and actually realized that that's not true, that I actually really liked those movies. It's just, I didn't like the second one. And it sort of colored my perception. Like, you know, like I didn't like whatever it was called rise of the fallen or whatever, like that one. I was not a fan of. And I think somehow in my mind, because it was the second one, and I felt like it was so inferior to the first one. I don't know, somehow it colored the other ones. But I agree with you, like, revisiting, like, Dark of the Moon, that movie is fantastic. And I really like, I mean, I like, I actually, like, again, I really like all of them except for the, the Fallen one. And I think, and, it, and it's, i I'm doing a little bit of research for today I discovered that Michael Bay doesn't like that one that much either, and in fact, neither do Archie and Kurtzman, um, because that movie, they had a release date for it before they had a script, and then there was a Writers Guild strike that meant they couldn't work on the script, and so by the, when they went into shooting on the second Transformers movie, they didn't really have a script that anybody was happy with, and I think that, and I, and I felt that way certainly as an audience member, when I, I remember seeing it at the Los Angeles Film Festival when they had its premiere, and because I was such a Bay fan and I was a fan of the first one, I went into it with really high expectations. And I just felt like I was like, who cares about any of this? Like, what is the point? I just thought it was so sl- sort of on a story level, so slapdash. But then I, in reading this thing about the production history and the writer's go strike and all that, now I kind of understand why. But, you know, uh, but other than that, these movies... Again, the technology is just stunning. The casts are stunning. Like again, he gets these people in these movies, whether it's Malkovich or Francis McDormand, or you know, he's 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 always like got such great taste in character actors that he he fills them out with. And I love with Transformers movies. The the, the other thing about Michael Bay, as opposed to most directors, I don't think there's any director who is more consistent about making movies where the stakes are so high. Like he's made like more than half of his movies the fucking world's gonna end you know (laughs) i mean like they are not he's not playing around like these transformers movies it's like they you know it's like he'll destroy chicago he'll destroy whatever like he'll destroy entire cities in these movies and the threat is always that the entire world is gonna uh you know get obliterated i mean to the point that a movie like 13 hours uh is almost like a quaint modest michael bay movie because it's you know even though like hundreds of people get shot in it it's all like within a few block radius or something but uh, but I so I love that you know the scale of the Transformers movies and the and the, the immensity of that that threat and I love how audacious he gets as they go like how they kind of get crazier as they go like the last night when you find out that the Transformers were like involved with Merlin and defeating Hitler and Harriet Tubman I mean it's crazy it's it, but I love it I love I love how crazy those movies get so I'm actually you know like you sort of coming out on this podcast as a Transformers fan. And I didn't even realize I was one. I forgot I was one until I revisited them this week. So I'm kind of glad this podcast gave me the excuse to, to do that. Cause I don't know if I would have gone back and looked at them again.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting. You uh, kind of invoked a memory when talking about the second Transformers film, because I remember having like really those distinctive thoughts, like in the theater going, this is, it seemed almost excessive for excessive sakes. And, and I remember my big complaint from that was I couldn't tell what was happening a lot of times yeah, on screen. 100%. Yeah, 100 And I remember sort of being a little trepidatious about going to see the third one in the film in 2011 mm-hmm. and the opening 20-minute sequence involving, you know, the Apollo 11 moon landing. I'm like, this is incredible. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, yeah. it was night and day different from the second film and, yeah. and, and got me right back on board with the series. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know you... You, you had a lot of praise for one of the transformer films um did you put one on your top 10 list one time or am I thinking of something completely different
1: uh I mean certainly for the year tra- last night was probably on it I, I would yeah. imagine because I did really love that one um so yeah no I mean that, that one is that one is probably my favorite just because I again just the how crazy it gets but like you say so does the third one I mean they, they do they, they really do kind of get better after that stumble with the second one. And, and you and you nailed it exactly like what I didn't like about the second one, which is that there are scenes in the second one where there's just like sort of crunching metal. And I have no idea what I'm looking at. And um, and that's unusual for a Michael Bay movie, like because, again, I think usually his skill is he knows how to choreograph large scale action in a way that even with the fast cuts, I'm pretty acclimated to what's going on. Like that was the way I felt. Uh, I know we'll get to it. We're going in order here, and I keep bringing up Six Underground, but that was the way I felt about Six Underground. Six Underground was like a totally insane movie, but I never felt confused about where I was or where people were in relation to each other. And the second Transformers movie was the one Michael Bay movie where I just – there were places where I had no idea what the hell was going on.
0: There's a scene in the third one when Shia LaBeouf and – forgive me for not knowing the actress's name – when they're in in a car – and a, like a slow motion scene where the car transforms, they're flying through the air, then transforms mm-hmm. back into them, and it's done so stunningly well that I, uh, your your brain has no choice but to believe what you're seeing on screen. Like it's just yeah. incredible, and it was slow. And I, I say this because it was a kind of a slow motion scene, whereas that second one, everything's just happening so so rapidly. So yeah, let's. Let's talk about 2013's pain and gain. And I just want to bring up the numbers here for a second here because this one has a listed budget of 26 million. This is completely for lack of a better term, like this is out of the wheelhouse of anything that he has directed leading up to this film. And I'm wondering if you know a little bit about sort of, you know, the decisions he made, to, decision he 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 sort of made to make this film and I know it was produced by him and mm-hmm. Okay, but let me just also follow that by saying, saw this one in the theater, and this was the movie that made me, I think, just fall in love with The Rock as an actor. Like, yeah. I, I yeah. loved him in this film. It was already a Mark yeah. Wahlberg film. So, I fired a lot of questions at you, so I'll let you pick it up wherever you want.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh- it's um, you know I, I think I don't know for a fa- I don't know much about the production history of Pain and Gain except that what well, you mentioned that I know it was for him a very inexpensive movie and and it's you know twenty five million dollars for a movie with The Rock and Mark Wahlberg uh, at that point is is dirt cheap so um, I can only assume that you know he probably wanted you know he went through that period there's like a seven year period I think where he does four or five Transformers movies and you know, doing, doing four, doing like five Transformers movies in seven years or whatever it is, you know, I'm guessing he wanted to flex some different muscles, no pun intended, given the subject matter painting game. But, you know, cause the thing about Michael Bay too, is he is kind of a cinephile and a film history for, you know, he went to Wesleyan, which, and studied under Janine Basinger, who's like, you know, fairly well known and esteemed film historian. And like Michael Bay is not, you know, he's a smart guy and he's a guy who has, who likes a lot of different kinds of movies. And, you know, most directors—I don't care who you are—maybe not Spielberg, but but most directors feel like they don't get a chance to do as many different types of things as they would like to do. You know, they 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 and 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 I would imagine Bay probably is right there. Like I know that Bay is a big Coen Brothers fan, and I think Pain and Game* gave him the opportunity, even though it's very much a Michael Bay movie. It doesn't look anything like a Coen Brothers movie, but it gave him a chance to do a movie with that kind of sense of humor, you know, um, like you wouldn't necessarily think again, his style is so different from the Coen brothers. I don't think people would necessarily make that connection, but doing a kind of black comedy, uh, with that kind of sensibility, you know, it just, it just gave him that opportunity. And I remember, uh, seeing that in theater and yeah, just, just, uh, really loving it and being very refreshed and very glad that he was able to make it because I, I have to admit from a, you know, I mean, look, directors, they don't need to listen to me, but, um, I tend to, as a fan, I get a little sad when a director I like gets locked into a franchise. Like, I remember when Sam Raimi did the Spider-Man movies, and I liked the Spider-Man movies, but I didn't want to just see Sam Raimi doing Spider-Man movies all the time. Like, I was so happy when he made Drag Me to Hell. I was so glad when he he did a non-franchise movie. And with Michael Bay, you know, again, uh, the Transformers movies are great, but I was so happy to get a break from them from him and see see a non-Transformers movie, and especially one that did have you know, again, like when I keep making this point about him being a great actor's director, I think pain and gain is kind of the the case where that's the most obvious because there aren't, you know, there's not a lot of special effects or uh enormous action or stunt sequences. I mean there's a few, but it really is basically just pure character and behavior. And it is, I think uh, you know, it's one of those movies. I mean, I was, I was already like The Rock. You know, with Southland Tales, I was kind of like, okay, this guy's got a sense of humor that goes beyond like just a uh, sort of whatever. You know, a wrestling. Just, just you know, a guy who's just coming at this from like not being a trained actor. Um, but Pain and Gain definitely, I feel like, gave him new shades to play. And uh, you know, it's everybody. Yeah, Anthony Mackie's great in it. I mean, it's just a sort of. There's, it's sort of a perfect movie. I mean, there's really like nothing. I can say about it other
0: than that. No, and it's one of those movies where it, when you watch the movie, you, you think there's no way this could have really happened in real life because it's <laughs> right. based. It's based off of a true story, and again, I will keep it mm-hmm. spoiler free for for those who haven't seen the film. But it's a film that that creates a call to action in that I found it necessary after I left the theater to look up this real story, and right. I wanted to know more about it. It was it was such an intriguing like this couldn't this couldn't possibly have really happened. Well, it turns out it did. There's a there's a theme throughout a lot of Michael Bay films that I have not touched on, I have not brought up, but it's uh it's really really apropos, really applies to the next film I want to talk about, and that is Michael Bay's clear respect for the United States military. And that's on display, especially in the Transformers films and you know a lot of his other films. This the movie, the next movie on I want to talk about is Thirteen Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. Uh again, a film that he produced uh and has an estimated budget of of about fifty million. From from what I've seen, I've seen it three times now. He 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 squeezes every bit of that fifty million on screen. I mean, yeah. I think the movie it, it's fantastic looking. Yeah. It's one of those films where I knew the outcome of the story. I knew what was going to happen to the characters before I saw the film, and it still had me on the edge of my seat and it's a yeah. and it's a one of the, and it's again it's a film that has 10 15 minutes of setup and it just takes off like a rocket and never really mm-hmm. stops it never really comes yeah. down and i say that as a compliment so do you do you agree that you do see that 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 admiral admiral respect for the military throughout his films and then i'd love to hear your thoughts on 13 hours
1: oh for sure he's got i mean that's a huge thing i mean i think he uh and in fact it's part of how he gets such production value is because he makes the military look so cool that they cooperate with all these movies i mean he always is you know getting to uh, uh you know he gets you know to, to basically borrow their f-16s and stuff that you know it would just just you know he just has to like pay for fuel i guess or something i don't know he doesn't have to you know basically he gets he gets a lot of production value from the military because they cooperate with all of his movies which uh is you know that's that's going to save you like tens of millions of dollars in a lot of cases. Um, it's definitely a thing in his movies. It's not a thing that I you know personally. This is this is. I mean, I'm I, like I'm not a military guy. I don't personally respond to that that much. Um, it's not like I'm much more honestly like in the Transformers movies. Uh, I'm much more relating to the guy who's wants a cool car and is trying to date Megan Fox than to any of the military than to Tyrese or something or Josh Duhamel. Um, but Thirteen Hours, I think, is. Hands down, like, in terms of action filmmaking, I mean, you were saying The Rock is one of the greatest action movies ever made. I mean, 13 hours in terms of action filmmaking, that is truly one of the greatest movies ever made. It, he kind of beats Spielberg at his own game. Hopefully Spielberg is listening to this, but I I feel like it kind of, it kind of tops like Saving Private Ryan or some of the other movies that are thought of as like the all time great uh, combat sequence movies. I mean, it is jammed to the hilt with like one nail-biting moment after another beautifully executed. I mean, the thing he pulls off in 13 hours that is really, really tricky, and I think Spielberg does it too in Saving Private Ryan, is to both, to get across the chaos of combat without the filmmaking itself being chaotic or purposeless like the filmmaking itself is rock solid and precise and you are you know what you need to know like you again as opposed to that transformers 2 thing we were talking about you're always acclimated to where like you know the he's he's so good at setting up the geography of those spaces so that you know you know what you need to know to follow the action but you also do get a sense of like the total terror the complete chaos that these guys are in. And I think it's an incredible movie, um, you know, on that level. I mean, I think it is a movie that I, you know, he it's, it's, and it's also a movie, you know, that like when I was talking, same thing before about families, like it's an interesting movie in that regard too. Cause there's a lot of, when there is time in the movie that's devoted to something other than people being shot at um, it's kind of about these guys families back home and their, their connections with their families and some of them are never going to see their families again and stuff like that and and again that goes back to that's that runs through most of his movies whether it is uh sean connery having a broken relationship with his daughter in the rock or uh, bruce willis raising Liv tyler without a mother and mark Wahlberg raising a daughter without a mother in the transformers movie and the um Uh, you know, even in the Bad Boys movies, it's like Will Smith is kind of like has no family life, but then Martin Lawrence is kind of like kind of constantly plagued by it, whether it's like his daughter dating or his, the, you know, his house constantly getting flooded or whatever, stuff like that. So, so anyway, so you you still got like the family thing kind of running through it. Um, I mean, the other interesting thing about Michael Bay, you know, that I'm, I'm always trying to wrap my head around and I've never, I haven't quite figured out, figured it out yet, but like, is figuring out Michael Bay as a kind of political filmmaker. And what I mean by that is like Michael Bay, you know, he gave, I saw him give an interview when 13 hours came out where he was saying like, this is not a political film. Like I've, I've taken the politics out of this because it's just about what went on on the ground. And first of all, there's no such thing as a non-political film. Like if you take the politics out of it, that's a political statement. And also I think he's being a little bit disingenuous because there are choices he makes or the writers make in that movie that by their nature are political. I mean, this, the, the fact that the movie has, you know, the character, I can't remember the actor's name who plays him, but the guy who's the kind of like weaselly academic, you know, like, like, like Michael Bay does not like, he doesn't like authority figures. That's for sure. I mean, that's one thing I think like politically in his movies, that's sort of a, um, like, like, I don't want to, I don't want to do Michael baby insult of comparing him to, to Donald Trump. But I think his appeal is somewhat similar to Trump's as a like populist who like sort of thrives on the idea of like not trusting the people in charge and like, you know, better and the, these people running the government are all idiots and all this kind of stuff. I mean, that's like a thing that goes throughout all Michael Bay's movies too, starting, starting with bad boys, like the people who are in the sort of administrative authority roles like Mark Helgenberger in bad boys and then, you know. Uh, bad boys, you know, there's and and the Rock, you know, there's there's like the guy from I don't remember like the Pentagon or wherever. Who you know, the, their, their authority figures are always like basically holding back the the men of real action in Michael Bay's movies, and that's kind of a political statement. And Thirteen Hours, you've got that Weasley guy who tells them to stand down, and when like people are going to get killed, and they defy the order, and like that whole thing of that guy telling them to, that station chief or whatever he is telling them to stand down. I mean. That's been pretty well. There's a lot of controversy over whether that really happened. And it's been, for the most part, pretty debunked. But, but like, Bay deciding to use that in the movie, that's a political choice because, and, and Bay deciding to use the idea that they called for air support and nobody sent any is a political choice because there's, controversy about that too about the question of whether it was even possible to get air support there and whether you know the air the only air support was in italy and it was like training planes that wouldn't have been able to do anything and so so basically my point is these choices he makes in that movie which maybe they're not political like from his point of view they may be purely dramatic it's like it's better drama if a guy says stand down and then they go anyway and it's better drama if they've been just left out to dry by uncaring Dip, you know uh bureaucrats but regardless choosing to tell that version of that story when there's a lot of controversy around it and there are a lot of alternate things points of view that came out during the investigations that's a political decision i mean and he's sort of he's that's a political it, or it has political ramifications it makes 13 hours a movie that essentially is sl- slanted more towards the kind of um conspiracy theory anti hillary clinton view of benghazi than the other so again i don't know what my point is about all this <laughs> except that except that it is a um, except that i think he's he when he when he says that it's not a political movie i don't think that's accurate and i have as a as a liberal watching the movie um, and this is a common issue for me in movies in action action movies especially because action movies are essentially conservative you know the values they espouse are usually fairly conservative and i love action movies but i'm also politically liberal and so i always have this like like a movie like 13 hours i kind of have this like i feel like i'm being yanked back and forth when i watch that movie because it is so skillful it's so brilliantly made and there's part of me that resists being manipulated by it because i don't entirely agree with it but on the other hand I feel like that's part of the point of, of movies and part of the point of view of art is, like, if you're only going to watch stuff that you agree with, well, that's part of how we got to where we are anyway. So, yeah. we, anyway, so clearly I have a lot of, like, ambivalent feelings about all of it. Uh, but the thing I'm not ambivalent about when it comes to 13 Hours is, again, I think the filmmaking in it is just, just uh, like, uh, my mind was blown when I saw that movie in the theater. I, I felt like I, that, like even more so than seeing the Transformers transform. Like, I felt like I've never seen anything like this in a movie theater. I just thought it was just stunning how, how well done it was.
0: Let's round out the conversation with his most recent feature film, Six Underground, which I think, I don't know, I don't, I don't genuinely know the story behind its distribution model, um, mm-hmm. except that, again, I mean, we're talking about a, a Michael Bay film. This is a guy that's come off of five Transformer films. He's come off of every film ever being made. Netflix chooses to go with it. I'm sure they paid a lot of money for the film. I'm sorry, listeners, I don't have those hard numbers in front of me. I remember I started the film. I was just outside scrolling on on my phone. I opened up Netflix and Six Underground, and I I opened up the film. And I started the film, and I just said, "What what are you doing? Like, what do you? Why are you watching this on your phone?" <laughs> and I, you know, I stopped and you know got everything all set up again. I have described this movie. And I, I said it to you as well, cause you, when we were texting, you, you, you had mentioned that you hadn't seen Six Underground yet. And I said, well, it's, it's the, it's the most Bay Bay has ever been. And I mean that as yeah. a compliment. So my plan is to rewatch that film, rewatch that film again tonight. Like I, I mm-hmm. just love it. And, and I think my only issue, and this is a sl- slight issue is like other films, that opening 20 minutes, I don't know if it ever gets to that momentum again. Like that opening, Mm. that opening car chase sequence in Six Underground is unbelievable. And had me audibly gasping out loud, watching the film by myself. Oh, oh, you know, like, like, I think it's, and it's, again, it's clear what's happening on the screen at all times. So take me through your experience watching Six Underground.
1: Yeah, I mean, I felt that way about the whole movie. And uh, to answer your question before about like what the budget was and stuff, I mean, I've read that it was a $150 million budget. So I think what I think it was one of those movies, you know, it was produced by Skydance, which is David Ellison's company, who also did um, Old Guard, the Charlize Theron movie that's on Netflix. And, and I think in both, not 100% sure about this Six Underground. I know in the case of Old Guard, they... Uh, we're gonna do. They they wanted to do it as a theatrical movie. They shopped it around to studios, and Netflix just offered them so much more money to make it with uh, that they went with Netflix. And I'm guessing maybe the same thing happened with Six Underground. I don't know, but uh, but yeah, it, it's it is a very the most bay <laughs> bay movie in multiple ways. I mean the, the you know everything we've been talking about. The action is unbelievable. I actually felt like it was pretty consistently astonishing throughout. I thought that whole Hong Kong there's this whole Hong Kong set piece where they're trying to extract the guy who's being held in a penthouse. I thought that was one of the greatest action sequences I've ever seen. I thought there's another sequence, a climactic sequence on a yacht. I thought, it was, I mean, I actually thought it was pretty much one amazing set piece after another and the connective tissue between them, I thought was pretty strong. Like I thought, you know, I thought it was really well paced in a way that was it like, just to the point of exhausting you like it like it like it it was it just just, he just he had it had the right rhythm where it was completely visceral and intense for the whole time but he he knew when to pull back and sort of do the character stuff and then we could ramp it back up again and again the character stuff you have another one of these movies the whole conceit is sort of it's about like there's a lot of it's another one of these bay movies about a sort of new, you know, surrogate family being formed or not formed and, and, and all that. And, uh, but yeah, I thought it was great. I thought it was uh, going back to our thing about liking to see him doing R rated movies, you know, Netflix, you don't have those kind of restrictions. I don't even think they rate them. So, uh, you know, it, it, was definitely, or maybe they do, maybe it was rated R, but anyway, whatever it was, um, you know, just, just, I, it was, it just felt like bait unhinged. I mean, I think like Netflix, you know, Netflix right now, in my opinion, um, it was funny. I was, I was on zoom the other day with a high school friend of mine who seemed shocked when I said like, who's not in the film industry or anything, you know, and we were talking about marriage story. And I said, marriage story was easily not only one of my favorite movies of last year, but I think like one of the all time great movies. And he was like, wow, a movie from Netflix was one of your best movies last year. And I mean, I think most of the best movies right now are being made by Netflix, because I think Netflix has basically taken over the space that used to be in the studios that doesn't exist of kind of well-funded auteur movies. And so, you know, they're giving lots of resources and lots of freedom to guys like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese and uh, Noah Baumbach and Spike Lee and many others. And, you know, they're, they're those movies, I mean, you know, Bay. Even Bay, even Six Underground, even a commercial action movie like that, I imagine is probably harder to get made now. You know, if, if he wants a hundred and fifty million dollar budget for that movie, I, I don't know that a studio is giving out $150 million for an R-rated non-franchise movie. So I think, you know thank God Netflix is like a place where where he can go for that or where Spike Lee can go to do the five bloods or something like those are movies that those guys would have been able to make at studios in the nineties that now you can't. And I mean, obviously the downside is like, you know, those movies not being seen on the big screen. But then again, right now, we're not seeing anything on the big screen. So
0: we would be remiss if we did not mention Platinum Dunes, which mm. is his film production company that he started in 2003. And, you know, just looking at the and I don't we don't need to go through all the movies, but just I'm just going to rattle them all off. Uh, clearly, it's, it's horror films. It is remakes of horror films. We're t- Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Amityville Horror, The Hitcher, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And we get into The Purge and things like that. Uh, what are your thoughts on on Platinum Dunes as the company, the films they put out?
1: Uh, yeah. And they also did, they also did, uh, whatchamacallit, A Quiet Place. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Platinum Dunes. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like anything else. It's, it's hit and miss. I mean, and, and I'm not. I thought, I honestly thought that their Texas Chainsaw Massacre was fantastic. I I thought that was great, and I thought the one they did at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the beginning, the prequel, was great too. I thought those were really scary movies um, and really well done. And I liked the Friday the 13th. I guess I like, you know, I like most of them. I mean, I I don't think, did the world need another Friday the 13th movie? Probably not. But it it was, uh, as far as that kind of thing goes, you know, it was good. I mean, I'm not a fan. I I think Platinum Dunes did. Did you say I don't? I can't. I've already forgot. Like when you were running down the list, did you? Did they do the Hitcher remake?
0: Uh, yep, they sure did. Yeah, yeah uh,
1: which I hated. So, <laughs> so that one I thought <laughs> that one I really despised. That that was like a movie clearly, clearly made by people who had no under, zero understanding of what made the original Hitcher great, um, and didn't replace it with something new that was great. Uh, but you know, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's it's cool. Look, I'm I'm am for any. I'm a bit. You know, they were sort of ahead of the curve. Platinum Dunes, in a way. I mean, because you know they were pre pre Bloomhouse doing these. You know, movies that had kind of, uh, you know, decent studio resources and distribution but we're still done on kind of a modest level and um, you know I think it's great to have a venue for those kind of movies and for filmmakers who are doing those kind of movies you know yeah I just I like some like I say I like some of them more than others and I but but the, the I, I was totally shocked by how much I thought how great I thought the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake was that they did because I love the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and uh, I thought that was sort of a perfect remake in the sense of be, being something that you know, isn't it? It has the essence of what made the original great, but it's something new as well. And I, I thought, it, I thought it was, uh, and I thought Quiet Place was great. Um, you know, so I'm, uh, so yeah, I don't know. And I think now that sort of seems to be. If I'm understanding correctly from what I, an interview I heard with one of his partners in that company, I think that's more the direction they're going to go in now is is to sort of look for stuff like Quiet Place as opposed to uh, to remakes, which I'm all for.
0: Awesome, awesome. All right, well, Jim, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for for talking Michael Bay with me. I um, you know, I have. Heard the chatter throughout the years about sort of the the pros and cons of Michael Bay, and there's a lot of people that you know you either love him or you don't like his films at all, and and I think it's okay to go down the middle in some circumstances. But he is a, a handful. He represents just a small handful of directors that I will see their film sight unseen. I don't you don't yeah. to, you don't have to tell show me a trailer. You don't have to give me a, a one sheet or even tell me what the film's about. You tell me that Michael Bay is directing the film. And I will watch it, and I'm, yeah. I'm I'm sure that echoes true for you as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Excellent. So, if people want to follow your work, what's the best way they can do that right now?
1: Oh gosh, probably. Uh, well, I mean, I've got a website, JimHempelFilms.com, although I have to update it; it's a couple, it's like a month out of date. But JimHempelFilms.com is a good place to go, or you can follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Hemphill, those are probably the two best uh best ways to keep on top of it
0: outstanding all right well thanks for doing this i really appreciate you as always coming on the show we have to make sure it's not another year and a half before you do this again
1: Definitely. I'm shocked it was that long. Yeah. I can't
0: believe we let it <laughs> yes. go that long. Uh, listeners, just r- remind people, like the very first guest I ever had on this show uh, six years ago was Jim. And so wow. it's, it's always a pleasure to have you back on. I appreciate it.
1: No, I, I appreciate getting the chance to uh, preach the gospel of Michael Bay. So Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: And uh, listeners will be happy to know that when him and I hang up, we're already going to kick around the ideas of who we're going to do next. So my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening. We'll be right <laughs>